Morning, church family and friends. Kids, I want you to know we love having you in the service. Uh, we're grateful that uh, we can do this together as a family, young and old, and, uh, and gather together around God's Word, gather to hear God speak through His Word as it's sung, as it's preached, as we summarize it in prayer. Um, and we're grateful too if you're here, if you're a friend or neighbor, you may not have a relationship with Christ, we're really grateful that you're here with us. Um, and we now will turn to the Word that Jen just read for us well in 1 Samuel chapter 27. So let me pray, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word together. Father, we are grateful that you tell us the truth about our circumstances. You tell us the truth about your righteousness. And you give us examples of people just like us who walk in their own strength, who are prone to spiritual blindness and compromise. This is the reason that your church gathers. We who were sinners have been made alive in Christ. And though we still struggle with sin and rebellion against you and against others, we stand before you not because of our own good deeds. We stand before you because of the righteousness of Christ. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us something about sin and righteousness in the life of your people. Help us to see in David, really here an example not to follow. Help us to behold a better king than David. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Walking through a hard thing is one thing, Walking through a hard thing for a long time is another thing. Longing for a spouse grows harder as the years wear on, and so do health challenges and relational conflicts. The stubborn persistence of a trial tempts us to wonder about God's heart toward us in the middle of that long trial. Is he hearing me grieve this thing? Does he see me floundering? Is his heart good if he withholds a good desire? God tells David, you're going to be king over my people Israel. But as time marches on, David doesn't see that vision of the future, of his future, come any closer. In fact, even though David is innocent of wrongdoing, David has been relentlessly hunted by Israel's current king. By this point in the story, King Saul has attempted to murder David, it could be as many as 10 times. And he's been betrayed by his own people to Saul at least twice. And not only is David on the run for his life, he's also responsible for 600 men who have joined him and then all their wives and children. And so David is wondering, how do I provide for two to 3,000 people in the land of Israel when this insane absolute monarch wants nothing else but to hunt and kill me? Throughout this story, we've watched David respond with astonishing maturity and faith. And we've watched him buckle under the pressure of his circumstances and compromise. Our text this morning is a challenge to interpret because God doesn't give us any signal one way or the other whether or not he's approving what David's doing. It's silent, mostly. What we do know is that David runs from Saul out of fear and he seeks the protection of Israel's enemy, the Philistines. Now this morning, I'm taking a sympathetically critical view of David. 
I'm sympathetic because I understand that David is under tremendous strain from the circumstances that God has permitted and brings into his life. And yet I'm critical because David seems to trust his own limited wisdom over God's everlasting word. He trusts his own resources, his own wisdom, his own ability to think through these problems. He shows no evidence of relying upon God's eternal word. We don't see David pray. We don't see David rehearse God's promises. We don't seek him seek, seeking godly counsel. We see him respond to legitimately dire and prolonged hardship with his own wisdom, and the results are bleak. I want you to think about a hard thing that's persisting in your life this week. A long trial, a lasting grief, a chronic disappointment, a long unanswered prayer, a good but unmet desire. Take those things in hand this morning and ask yourself this question. Will I trust God's eternal everlasting word or my own limited wisdom? When the pressure's up, when the chips are down, when decisions need to be made, will I trust God's word or my own wisdom? This passage this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 27, invites us to trust God with three purposeful steps. The first step to trusting God's word is believing his promises. It's what we see in verses 1 through 7, or it's what we don't see in verses 1 through 7. As I said, God has told David, you're going to be king over my people Israel. The crown prince, Jonathan, Saul's own son, affirms for David, yeah, this is going to happen. Abigail, David's wife, affirms the same thing. Even King Saul affirms that David will be king of Israel. We've seen this over the last few months. And God has demonstrated in David's life time and time again, I can protect your life in the land of Israel. I can protect your life from King Saul. But David's heart fails him here. His faith falters and his fear consumes him. Look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart, here's the internal dialogue of the future king of Israel. Now I shall perish. I shall be swept away one day by the hand of of Saul. There is nothing better for me. Nothing better for me. Can you believe that statement? Nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. That's the best alternative that's before the king, future king of Israel. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David runs right into the hands of the enemy king. There's no way that I can escape from the hand of Saul, so I'm going to go and find protection under the hand of Achish, king of Gath. In chapter 21, David also went to the land of the Philistines. Matt preached that passage for us, and in that passage, he had to pretend he was insane in order to not be killed because his reputation as the killer of Goliath of Gath had preceded him to that city. But David here feels he must go here again, that there's no better alternative than for him to leave the land and to go to the land of the Philistines. Look at verse 2. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ehanoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. 
David and his men, their wives and their children, could be as many as two or maybe 3,000, we don't know. But they make a 30-mile trek, a rough trek, from where they were in the wilderness of Ziph to Gath, the royal city of the Philistines. And on paper, this seems to work, right? He's, his objective is, I don't want to be killed by the hand of Saul. He goes to the land of the Philistines, and Saul doesn't pursue him there. So initially, his wisdom seems to be effective. Look at verse 5. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. David wants the protection of Achish, but he doesn't want to live right under Achish's nose. So he wants to go to a city that's in, in an outlying area so that he can live safely in the land, but not need to be near to a man, likely the same Achish from chapter 21 who's tried to kill him in the past. So Achish gives him Ziklag, about 20 miles southeast, or we think, of Gath. And we're told in this passage that David is there for 16 months. Now David is convinced He's convinced that he will perish at the hands of Saul, so he seeks protection in the hands of Achish. The best possible reading, the most sympathetic reading of what David is doing here is, listen, if I stay here, Saul will kill me and God's promises won't come true. So I'm going to help God and I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines. But I believe what we see here is David's faith faltering. He knows full well, and so do the people around him, that God is able to protect David from spears, from Israelite armies, from the betrayal of his own people. David has been spared probably at least 10 times at this point in the story. He knows that God can protect him in the land of Israel. He knows he doesn't need to leave in order for God to fulfill his promises. And so I'm left wondering, where is the David who powerfully sang, Lord, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you, O God, have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. O God, you are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. So I'm critical of David's decision here, but I'm also sympathetic. David is afraid for his life. And he has to be overwhelmed by his responsibilities. He's got to be exhausted, providing for all these people while they're running from Saul, while Saul is actively pursuing them. And we saw with Abigail and Nabal how hard it was for David to provide for these people. And so his faith falters. But let's not stand in judgment because we've been there. Instead of rehearsing God's promises... In the midst of a long trial, David rehearses his fearful circumstances. Corey ten Boon was a Dutch Christian who stubbornly resisted the Nazis. And I walked through the kitchen this week to fill up my coffee, and I heard Nicole quoting her to the kids. Corey ten Boon said this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future 
to a known God. Church family, in your darkest night spiritually, when you cannot see the future, you know the character and the heart of your God. Believe His promises. Promises that the Holy Spirit has hammered into His Word. These promises are everlastingly trustworthy. Test your wisdom against them. Test your fears against God's promises. Test your emotions against God's promises. Test them against His everlasting Word. What has God promised you? He loves you. He died for you. His Spirit is with you. He's given you a church He's coming again. He will make all things new. You will reign with Him forever. Believe God's promises more than the threats of your circumstances. The threats of your circumstances are limited. His promises are everlasting. Believe them when the situation in your life lingers and persists and becomes more chronic by the day. Believe God's promises. Secondly, this morning we see the need to treasure God's commands, treasure His commands, especially when circumstances persist. Look at verse 8. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt." Now, at a point in history when bands of raiders constantly harassed one another, we saw this earlier in David's life when raiders came into the land of Israel to harass the Israelites and David went up and took care of them, David begins to raid himself. The three groups mentioned here in chapter 27 of 1 Samuel are ancient enemies of the Israelites. We're told that they've lived in the land here from of old. And I think this is a textual clue that these verses were probably people, the generation of Joshua, did not remove from the land. And so they're living in the land of Israel or territory controlled by the people of Israel. Which raises the question, why did God command Joshua's generation of Israelites to do this? Why were the Israelites commanded by God to remove the Canaanite people from the land of Canaan so that his people could occupy the land? It's a hard question. There's a few things we know. God is clear over and over again, Deuteronomy 9 would be one example of this, that he's not doing this because the people, his people Israel, were superior in any way to the people living in the land. God is also clear that this is happening not because God's people, Israel, are more righteous than any of the Gentile, the non-Israelites who are living in the land of Canaan. They are not more righteous. That's not why God is doing this. Instead, God says the Israelites would be God's instrument of divine judgment against the people living in the land of Canaan. God's people become an instrument of God's judgment against these people living in the land of Canaan. The Canaanite evil, we're told, was so grim that God decides to bring judgment upon them in their generation. Most of us will wait until Christ returns. 
But the Canaanite evil was so grim that God brought their judgment in their own generation. This is not unlike what happens to the generation of Noah. God's people become like the, the floodwaters that bring God's divine judgment onto the earth. It's hard and it's sobering, but it also is foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing what Jesus will do when He returns at the end of all things, and He will bring divine judgment to all nations of the earth. Church, may this bring evangelistic fervor into our hearts. Now, we read here that David would strike these people, leaving no man or woman alive. But then he would take the livestock and the herds and the flocks and the garments as bounty. And he would take that bounty and he would give some of it to Achish, king of Gath, to pay him off. Now, the most generous reading of this is to see that David is finishing the instructions given to Joshua generations before. That's the most generous way that we can look at this. But there are a few things that make even that a challenge. First, David takes bounty and pays off Achish. Second, he's using the situation to deceive Achish, which we'll see in a minute. And third, we hear the reason that David is doing this, which is not to bring God glory. It's not to serve God in this way. Instead, we'll see that it's to keep the situation under wraps. Look at verse 10. When Achish said, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should come, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was David's custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, David has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And notice how David misleads Achish. He makes it seem like he's attacking Israelites in Israel, when in reality he's attacking the ancient enemies of the Israelites who still lived in the land or in land controlled by Israel. It's shrewd. And he is in a battle. And that's why he says in verse 12, that's why Achish says in verse 12, David has made himself an utter stench to his own people Israel. Achish believes that David is attacking his own people and he's bringing the bounty of Israel back to the Philistines. And Achish says, well, this guy is loyal. He'll be my servant forever because there's no way he can go back to the Israelites. There's no way he can go back to his own people. He is a stench in their nostrils. When in reality, David has been building a reputation with his people by eliminating their marauding, raiding neighbors. David's a smart man. And I think he's in error here, trusting his own wisdom. And that's why David doesn't leave anyone alive. David doesn't want any witnesses to be able to tell Achish who exactly David is marauding and raiding. And so he doesn't leave any men or women alive alive to talk about it. And this wasn't just one bad decision on a bad day. This was his custom the entire time he lived in the land of the Philistines. 
He pretended to be supporting and serving Achish, but he deceived him the whole time. Our flirtation with sin never stays under our control. We tell ourselves that we can control our sin. We can't. We flirt around the edges of gossip, or we wade into a Netflix series that we have no business consuming. We give in to despair or chronic fear, or we wade into self-pity, or we let ourselves vent bursts of anger. You cannot tame a lion. You cannot swallow a waterfall, and you cannot tame your sin. You cannot manage your sin, not in your own strength. And that's why we must treasure God's commands. Not just obey God's commands, though we're called to do it, but to treasure them, to see that God's commands are for our good. That's why we obey with glad hearts. At least that's the goal. We must trust that what God instructs us to do in the Bible in a particular circumstance is more satisfying than sin. What God instructs us to do in the Bible in that situation is more satisfying than sin. We must trust that God's commands will produce more joy in the midst of that circumstance than the fleeting happiness of sin. We must trust that God's commands will produce more order and more stability than sin's empty promises. We have to expose the lie of sin that it produces lasting happiness and order and flourishing. And listen, God's commands are not just a list of behaviors to avoid. This isn't just do not lie or steal or murder. God's commands construct a vision for life that's summarized by loving God and loving people. That's what God's commands produce in the life of a Christian and the life of a church family. Now, we can treat God's commands in at least three different ways when we're waiting for Him to act in a particular circumstance. One way to treat God's command, commands is defiance. Defiance says, I know what God, what God wants from me in this situation. I know what it is. I have clarity on what I should do in this situation. I'm just not doing it. God says, pray for those who persecute you. Absolutely not. I will not. Vengeance will come to this person. Or God says, hold fast to my word no matter what. No way. God's commands for sexuality are out of fashion. And if defiance describes your relationship with a sin pattern accurately this morning, maybe not all areas of sin, but if you have an area of sin struggle and defiance is what defines your relationship with that sin struggle, abandon it this morning. Leave it in the dust. Turn from it. We can see in David's life and even more clearly in Saul's life how sin continues to grow and entangle and destroy. It rots us from the inside out. We cannot manage our sin. We have to turn from it. Defiance is one way we respond to God's commands. A second way is defeat. Defeat says the weight of my sin is so heavy. God has got to be tired of me. Certainly the people around me are tired of me. I'm a fraud. There is no way I'm going to church this morning to worship. There's no way. I'm unworthy. 
Sin seems crouching around me constantly. I see the evil in my own heart and I feel so discouraged by it. If defeat describes your relationship with a sin pattern this morning, maybe not all of them, but if it describes a particular sin pattern accurately, then speak boldly to your heart this morning. Here's John Murray. He writes, oh, we will taste much of the bitterness of sin. We'll taste much of the bitterness of sin. And with our increasing sanctification, the more we look like Christ, the more we grow in faith, we will taste more and more of its bitterness. It will become worse to us the more we look like Christ. But we will never taste one drop of the damnation of that sin. We will never taste one drop of the consequence of that sin. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If defeat is what describes your relationship with a sin pattern this morning, then my call to you is get up and speak boldly to it. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ. Defiance, defeat, and then delight where this point is headed in treasuring. Delight says, I believe God is good and loving, and therefore I believe by faith that all he commands me to do is for my good and an expression of his love for me. And that's why on his better days, David would write that God's commands are to be treasured. Deal bountifully with me, your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. All from Psalm 119. We need to build the muscles and the habits to treasure God's commands over our own wisdom. That long, hard thing comes in and that trial will not, will not give up. What do we do? We treasure God's commands over our own wisdom and over the world's wisdom. We must search God's word hungry to align our hearts, minds, and behaviors to it. Treasuring God's commands because we treasure God. We know and we love and we trust God. And so we know and we love and we trust God's good commands. We follow him even when it doesn't make sense because we love him and because we trust him. Treasure God's commands. And then in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28, behold God's king. David's behavior in this chapter ends up putting him in an extremely tight spot. This may be how God gives us commentary on David's actions in this chapter. It might tell us how God feels about David's decisions and behaviors. Look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Uh-oh. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David has a dilemma. He's been deceiving and misleading Achish all along. 
He makes it seem like he's attacking Israelites when really he's been attacking Israel's enemies. And now, though he's won the trust of Achish, the future king of Israel now has to go align himself with the Philistines to fight his own people Israel, which according to Achish, he's been doing for the last 16 months. What does David do now? He confesses his sin. He confesses his deceit to Achish. Or does he go attack his own people? In verse 2, David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. What a statement. No clarity. He flies as high as he can, probably to buy himself more time. You will see what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, you sh very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. But now we're left with Israel's future king aligned with Israel's enemy against them. God's anointed David to be the king of Israel, and now David got himself into a situation where he needs to go and fight his own people. What an appropriately bleak situation. This is where David's wisdom ends up. This is where our limited wisdom gets us when we set it over against God's everlasting word. David shows no evidence in this chapter of seeking the will of God, seeking the counsel of godly people around him. And we're left a bit deflated. David's a person that's easy for us to admire and respect. He's a towering figure. Sometimes he acts with incredible faithfulness, showing zeal for God and a hunger for righteousness. Yet sometimes he confounds us with his rebellion. And in his honest moments, David knows this about himself. He writes in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. David's heart is not clean. Or his hands are not clean. His heart is not pure. His soul is not faithful. His mouth is not without deceit. There is no one righteous, not even one. It's true of David. It's true of me. And it's true of you. David is not the king we need. We need to behold another king, a heavenly king who will defend us. And throughout the Bible, God urges us to look for this king one who will defeat our enemies, one who will always be faithful, one who will always do righteousness, one who will free us from the power of sin in our own lives, one who will represent us well to God. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord in Jeremiah 23, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, the days of this branch of David, this descendant of David, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, the branch, the descendant of David, will be called. He will be called the Lord is our righteousness. That's the name of the king we need to behold. A descendant of David, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is King of all the earth. 
he ascended the hill of the Lord. And he stands in his holy place. He has clean hands and a pure heart. He comes the first time to suffer, to live, to die in our place. And then he gives new life to all who turn and believe in him. And he will come a second time to bring judgment to all who reject him and to usher his own people into everlasting joy. And he will be called faithful and true. And he will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Church, behold God's King. Behold God's King. Walking through a hard thing is one thing. Walking through a hard thing for a long time is another. And the exhaustion of long trials can tempt us to compromise. This morning is a reminder to hold fast, to trust God's everlasting word over our own limited wisdom. We cannot see all that we need to see, so we must trust the one who can. Believe God's promises, treasure God's commands, and behold God's king. God makes broken people whole. God makes blind people see. God makes defiled people clean. God makes dead people alive. That's what he does. Our righteousness is found in him. He takes sinners and makes us righteous. That's the amazing news that we proclaim as the church. That's why we understand David. We understand these moments of unbelievable maturity and righteousness, and we understand these moments of foolish compromise and everything in between, because we are just like David. And God knows how bitterly we have turned and still turn away from him. But in the depths of our sin, and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, and our righteousness is his. And so John Murray again says that God loved us with a love so great, so invincible, so purposeful that he gave over his own son to face death for every one of the sons and daughters to be brought to glory so that they would never taste one drop of his damnation and condemnation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, not reluctance, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.